0: I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Is that better? I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. Last week, of course, we began the book of Philippians, started our new series, and we looked at the first two verses, and I noted how in the book of Philippians, we catch really a glimpse of um, a little bit of insight into what is really a, a remarkable fellowship or partnership between Paul and with him, Timothy, on the one hand, and the Philippian church on the other hand. This was a fellowship, a partnership that was rooted in the gospel. It was characterized by humility and a mutual desire for the good of the other party. We looked at that last week, and today we're going to look at verses 3 to 7 and uh, begin to examine where Paul now really starts to get into the letter with his opening and his his thanksgiving and prayer. So let's just read. I'm going to start in verse 1 again. We'll read 1 to 7 and then we will get into the text a little more closely. So verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, and confirmation of the gospel. I've heard of soldiers who speak about the bond and the brotherhood that forms with fellow soldiers uh, when they've come through battle. Uh, A similar phenomenon can be found amongst um, certain sports teams as well as they battle in a very different way, obviously, but... Uh, form close relationships through even sport. Um, But I would submit to you that uh, the greatest example of this kind of thing and the most meaningful one, the ultimate expression of this is found amongst Christians in a church. Our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood. We know this from Ephesians 6. But when brothers and sisters in Christ battle with and for one another, labor together for gospel advance and come through various types of trials and suffering, learning to forgive one another and bear with one another. It is a glorious and a sweet bond that is formed and, it, and strengthened through that. And it is the type of thing that is very much worthy of praise. It is worthy of giving thanks to God for. And this is something of what Paul knew and experienced and lived with the Philippian church. And so as Paul begins this letter here, after greeting them, he launches into this thanksgiving. He praises and thanks God for the Philippians. And so as we continue to look at true gospel fellowship, uh, this is what our outline is going to be today as we look at verses 3 to 7. true gospel fellowship is, first, a joyful gift from God. See that in verses 3 to 5. Secondly, it is preserved and secured by God. That's verse 6. And thirdly, true gospel fellowship is accompanied by the fruit of steadfastness. And that's verse 7. So that's where we're going. So let's begin. uh, First point, true gospel fellowship is a joyful gift from God. So look at verse 3 again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, Paul begins this letter by expressing his thankfulness to God for the Philippians. Whenever Paul thinks of and prays for the Philippian church, something that he is continuously doing, he gives thanks to God for them. And he says he makes his prayer always with joy. He is thankful. And he is joyful as he prays for them. And in verse 5, he says what drives his joyful thanks. What makes him joyful. Why it's such a treat for him to pray for them. He says because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I mentioned That word partnership last week is that one of those Greek words that everybody knows or has heard, koinonia, uh, sometimes also translated sharing in or participating in or fellowship. Paul is filled with joy because of the fellowship, the partnership that they have together in the gospel, Paul and this church in Philippi. Now, what does he mean by partnership in the gospel? Well, again, last week, if you recall, we noted that In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Paul speaks there uh, of salvation itself as being a fellowship of God's Son. That is indeed what the root of Christian unity is, that all who are born again share in Christ. There's a oneness in Christ Jesus that all Christians have, and this is what the Philippians indeed shared with Paul, and certainly Paul was grateful for that. However, I think he has something even more specific in mind than salvation in general. Uh, This common salvation, this fellowship in the Son, in the case of the Philippians, had worked itself out into an active partnership in which the Philippian church supported Paul as he went on his missionary journey from them. They're all, yes, part of the universal church together, But this had given rise to an even more intimate partnership in the cause of the gospel. And this partnership, Paul said, had been in place from the first day until now. That is, from the start of the church, from when the gospel had come to Philippi, and these people had believed this church had been formed ever since that day, right up until the time that Paul's writing this epistle from prison in Rome, if you recall. They had been there and had been supporting Paul. In fact, if you flip over a couple pages to chapter 4, in verse 14, Paul says this to them. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Share, there's that word again, to participate in, to have fellowship in, my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, which is probably Paul's way of saying when the gospel first came to you, When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. This is a church that, from day one, from the time of its forming to the time Paul left Macedonia and carried on throughout Greece, the church stood by him and sent him aid as he needed it. Indeed, this is what one of the things that has prompted the very letter of Philippi is they had sent this Epaphroditus to him, which we'll uh, see eventually more of here, to, to supply some of Paul's needs, some of what he lacked, to minister to Paul imprisoned. And So this common salvation and then this active partnership in Paul's work of the gospel, Paul's work as an apostle, was of great blessing for Paul. Something for which he thanked God continuously. Something that made him joyful as he thought of this church and prayed for them. The fact that Paul thanks God for them and for what they've done is interesting. And I think it's also revealing. Um, The Philippians were certainly responsible beings who made decisions. Uh, They would have chosen however they did to take Epaphroditus and send him off. They would have decided what and how much they were giving to Paul. And yet Paul sees that in God's sovereignty as a fact that they were ultimately the agency through which God himself blessed and supported and upheld Paul. And so he can thank God for the support and help of the Philippians because God is ultimately the one behind the Philippians' actions. I'm not sure what excites you today. I'm not sure what causes you great joy. There are certainly many legitimate things that bring joy. But gospel fellowship, gospel partnership, is one place where that joy ought to be found. In the friendship that comes in fellowship, certainly, but also in the partnership, in the working together to advance the gospel, in working together to build one another up in the faith through using the gifts that God has given to each one of us, through stirring one another up to love and good deeds and so on. This is a cause for joy. I think another takeaway from this, and we're going to see this a few times in the book of Philippians, is that supporting those who do, missionary activity is a gloriously good thing. You'll notice throughout Philippians, Paul never belittles the support of the Philippians as if it's just giving. As if it's just support. Well, they're not really doing the real thing, but, you know, sure. That's something, I guess. He never talks of it like that. He's He's actually later, we'll see him speak very highly of Epaphroditus, who is the one who risked his life to go deliver the gift to Paul as doing the work of ministry, the work of the gospel himself. How? By supporting the apostle Paul. This support role is indispensable. And it was evidence of God's grace at work in the Philippians that they would sacrifice in this way and that they would support him through it all. And so Paul is overjoyed with this. It is an important work. It is a good thing. Many of you know who William Carey is. He was a missionary, sometimes called the father of modern missions. Uh, He went into India. He was from Britain. And he told Andrew Fuller, a great theologian himself. uh, Carey told Fuller, his friend, that he would go down into the well. That is, he would go to India as a missionary If Fuller and others with him in Britain would hold the rope for him. So he'll go down into the well so long as you guys are here holding the rope. In other words, supporting him from that end. He saw that as essential, an essential part of his mission. Support in various ways, including prayer, finances, whatever else it might be. If that's not there in Kerry's mind, he's falling and he's a goner, right? This gospel fellowship, gospel partnership is a precious blessing from God. And if you've been without it for a time, you know, you probably know from experience just how true that is. If you've received that support and partnership from others, you know how precious that is. So secondly, the true gospel fellowship is preserved and it is secured by God. Verse six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One of the great and well-known verses of the book of Philippians. Uh, Paul tells them he is confident. He is sure that the fruit he sees in the Philippians is a genuine fruit stemming from a genuine faith. And he encourages the church. We're seeing a wonderful uh, partnership and fellowship with the Philippian church. uh, We should not idealize this. They still had issues. There's still some infighting, we'll see, as we get into this book further. There was still need of growing in humility and grace. They were still having to hold the line against false teaching that was threatening to creep its way in, which we'll see in chapter 3. And so as Paul is going to address some of these matters, First, he is encouraging them that he's confident that God would complete the work that he began in them. The good work that Paul is referring to here is salvation itself. It is the foundation of their external partnership that Paul returns to here in this verse. He's saying God will bring salvation to completion in them. Now, when we talk about salvation... We often speak of it as a done deal for people. We use past tense language or completed action language. Uh, You are saved. Paul himself used this kind of language. Think of Ephesians 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a completed action. Salvation is a completed reality. It is something that is purchased by Christ Nothing to be added to by anyone else, not by you, not by me. But it is also true that all of the blessings that come from the gift of salvation are not poured out upon the saved individual all at once. It's not poured out all up front. For example, our future inheritance that we await, the new heavens and new earth, glory, as it is often called, is something that we yet wait for. It is sure it is coming for those in Christ, but we don't yet possess it. We sometimes talk about this. We have now blessings of salvation we experience now, and there are blessings of salvation we have do not yet experience. There's now and there's not yet. And so sometimes we find salvation also spoken of in the Bible as a future thing. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Perhaps even more clearly, Hebrews nine twenty eight speaks of Christ appearing a second time, his return, a future event. It says not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here in Philippians, Paul speaks of salvation as a work that God begins and will bring to completion. What he's saying is that those who have indeed been born again, those who have repented of their sins, they've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who've been made new within, for such people, Paul's saying, God will complete the work that he's begun. He will not only save initially And then, who knows where it goes from there. He will not only save up front, but he will also sanctify that believer and bring them safely through whatever life's going to bring them to the end. This is what he's saying. He's confident of them, uh, confident of for the Philippian church. And so when the Lord Jesus returns, what he calls here the day of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, they will indeed, at that time, be raised imperishable, granted resurrected bodies, then to receive that inheritance in its fullness, to dwell with God and with his people in the new heavens and new earth. So Paul's encouraging the Philippian church that though they are yet far short of perfection, just as he is himself, which he'll say in chapter 3, God will nevertheless see them through to the end. because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This total salvation, if you will, this complete package, one's faith and repentance and forgiveness of sins all the way through to glorification. This is the promise of the covenant of grace, of the new covenant. The entirety of salvation that Jesus has purchased in his life, death, and resurrection is a sure thing from God, and he wants you to know it. In fact, in Hebrews 9, sorry, Hebrews 6, I'm just going to flip there for a moment. Hebrews is all about the certainty of what Christ has accomplished, Not made possible, but the actual salvation he has certainly purchased for believers. In verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. The the context, he's, he's again showing the certainty of salvation in Christ. It is a sure and steadfast anchor of the hope. God wants, he says, desire to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the gospel, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. He's made oaths in scripture, covenants, promises. He must fulfill and keep that he will save those who are in Christ. Salvation begins with election, and it ends with glorification. You remember Romans eight twenty-eight to thirty, what is often referred to as the golden chain. And Paul speaks of all those things, even glorification, as a past tense reality, because it's as good as done for those who are in Christ. He will complete what he begins. It begins with election, it ends with glorification. It includes propitiation of sins, the satisfaction of God's wrath by Christ Jesus on the cross, justification, being declared righteous before God, includes the forgiveness of sins, having all of your transgressions wiped clean. It includes your sanctification and perseverance. Perseverance. And all of this is, of course, a gift of God's grace. It is an act of his mercy. Because every man, every woman is a sinner. Every human being falls short of the glory of God. All have violated God's law in thought and in word and in deed. In ways too numerous to count. And so as the righteous and holy God that he is, all sinners deserve God's judgment. The penalty for this is death. And after that comes judgment from God and eternity in hell. This is the penalty for sin that God has determined is just. And yet he has worked for salvation for all who believe. And God does call men, women everywhere as Paul himself preached in Athens in Acts 17 to repent and to believe. As God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, he is indeed gracious, merciful, he is slow to anger. So if you have ears to hear, repent of your sin, confess your sinfulness to God Confess it for what it is, violations of his law, of his righteous character. And place your faith in Jesus Christ who died for sinners and rose again from the dead, securing eternal redemption for all who believe in him. All those who believe in Christ are indeed united to him and God only, not only calls you to faith and justifies you, but also sanctifies and will glorify. This is a, a, a classic text for teaching what is often referred to as the uh, doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That is that all who are truly born again, all who are truly saved will be kept by God, will persevere until the end. They will come through all trials And all obstacles. A key text to understanding this is the parable of the sower. You can find it in the Gospels, one place, Matthew 13. The gospel message of God's salvation in Christ goes forth, it is spread, it is the seed that goes out, and there are various responses. Some reject it outright. that's on the path this is how jesus himself explains the text explains the parable to his disciples but in others it takes root for a season however eventually whether it's the cares of the world whether it's deceitfulness of riches or whether it's trials of persecution they eventually wither and fall away and the only saving response is the one that Jesus calls good soil, where the gospel takes root and produces lasting fruit. When John the apostle dealt with some teachers who had wandered from the faith in 1 John chapter 2, he said this in verse 19. He's comforting these brothers and sisters because these people had gone out from them, had left them, had abandoned the gospel, had gone into false teaching, John says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They proved the parable of Jesus. They proved not to be true by abandoning the gospel and the Lord's people. Well, the perseverance of the saints, uh, this does not mean that there's never going to be trial. Nor does it mean that true Christians don't sin or even sin very grievously sometimes. But there will be repentance. There won't be a final and complete falling away. Like Peter is a great example of falling rather grievously as he denied Christ in spectacular fashion, even calling down curses upon himself. May God curse me if I know this man. That's a pretty spectacular sin. And he knew it. And he was forgiven by Christ. He was restored. God completed the work he began in Peter. It is really a tragedy that so many would fight and balk at these truths. God's sovereignty to complete the salvation that he begins in a person ought to be to you the sweetest of comforts. You know your soul, do you not? Something of it, of your weakness, of your failures, of your own Peter moments, whether it's in private or in public. What good news that God completes what he begins. If you are weary, if you are fearful, uncertain of the future, wrestling with doubts, perhaps racked by guilt for persistent sins, and yet you know there's nowhere else to turn, you have no other hope, you have nowhere to go, that Jesus is your only hope of salvation. You need to just rest your soul there. To stand with Peter in John 6, when Jesus asks, do you want to go too? When these other disciples are fleeing, all these other folks are revealing themselves to be not, you know, they were not good soil. They just believed for a time when it was convenient or when they could get something out of Jesus and then they abandoned when things got tough. Jesus is not desperate in that moment. Do you guys want to go too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? For all the things Peter didn't know, for all of his weaknesses, he knew that Jesus was indeed the Christ. This is where we rest. We you might be weak, feeling your weakness, feeling your fears of what's to come. Do not put confidence in the flesh. Place your hope in Christ Jesus alone. Rest your soul in this truth. Trust that God will bring to completion what he has begun. I don't know how I'll stand if this or that happens or comes to pass. Trust the Lord that he will help you through. Your perseverance will not be due to your own heroic nature, but because of God's mercy, because of his kindness because of his power pray and trust that God will glorify himself through bringing salvation to its completion in you in John 10:27 Jesus said my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they will never perish Do we die? We still die, right? What's he talking about? Eternally, we will never perish. We will be with the Lord forever. Though we die, yet will we live. John 11, Jesus talks about this with Martha. The second death, the judgment of God, holds no power or sway over those who are in Christ. They will never perish, he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Nobody. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. I've got you secure. The father's got you secure. We are one. You will never perish. This is, this is the good news. That for those in Christ Your salvation is secured and completed by Christ. This can now motivate you to to more freely seek to obey the Lord. Because you're his. Come what may. And when you know you've failed again and sinned miserably, you look again to Christ. You claim again these promises. You stand here. He's guaranteed it with an oath. God wants you to know this. The Philippians were to be encouraged. God would finish what he started. And in this way, the fellowship that Paul and the church had would endure, not just in this life, but it would continue on to the day of Christ Jesus and beyond. The evangelistic work of Paul and of the church in general would cease at some point, but fellowship would continue. There's a lot we don't know about the final state, but we know that the fellowship in the Son will never end. The brotherhood you share with believers now will not run out, but will be brought to perfection. It is preserved and is secured by God himself. Thirdly, true gospel fellowship is accompanied by the fruit of steadfastness. Some might think that this is presumptuous of Paul to make such a confident assertion about their endurance, but that's not his take. Look at verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you. This is a justified claim, even a necessary claim. It's a necessary conclusion for Paul to make. He says, because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul is confident that these Philippians are genuine good soil because of what he has witnessed, because of what he has benefited from, this fruitfulness of the brothers and sisters, their steadfastness, their support. Again, when a hardened sinner is converted to Christ, there is an actual change in them that takes place. As the old stony heart is removed and is replaced by the heart of flesh and their desires begin to change. This is part of salvation that God begins and brings to completion. And there's observable fruit then of righteousness in such believers, in true believers. Now this is what Paul has seen. And so he's just drawing the conclusions here. Specifically, he says here that they've become partakers with me of grace. That word partakers is again, that word koinonia, fellowship, partnership, with with a prefix uh, that means with. So you are fellowshippers, participants, or partakers with me of grace. Now this reference to grace could refer to salvation in general, Know, your, your fellow participants in salvation with me. But Paul seems to, again, have more than that in mind. Obviously, that's true. He's glad for that. They care, share a common salvation. It is foundational. But he has in view here, they sharing in his ministry. I think that's what he's referring to when he talks about grace here. Uh, elsewhere, Paul explicitly links his apostolic commission to his grace, to the grace that's been given him. Uh, Romans 1. Five, First Corinthians three ten, or a couple of places, and here, and then that's certainly the context here. Their partnership in the gospel and his mission, and he explains here what he's referring to when he says they're partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Again, this this church has stood by and supported Paul as he proclaimed and defended the gospel, everywhere he went, as he gave a defense for it, as he argued for it, whether he's in the marketplace, whether he's in tabernacles, wherever he is arguing from the scriptures, wherever he went, they supported him. And even now, as he's writing this, in his imprisonment, they continued to do so. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Paul wrote this to Timothy. Remember, remember, Timothy is a good brother and friend to Paul and fellow worker of the gospel. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Many had become ashamed of Paul at various points in his ministry when he suffered We'll see this even down in, later in chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. At the time he wrote this letter, Paul was dealing with this very thing. Some obviously thought that Paul was in the wrong. They were ashamed of him. It says they preached Christ out of rivalry and to afflict him, to make him feel worse. Paul's done something wrong and probably deserves to be there, but we're free and we can go ahead and preach Christ. But others there were, he'll say, who knew rightly that he was in prison for his defense of the gospel, that that's precisely what has landed him there. And the Philippians fit that last category. They stood with him in his defense of the gospel and in his imprisonment. The Philippians were no fair weather partners to Paul. And this is the fruit of their saving faith. This is what makes Paul so confident in the genuineness of their faith, the genuineness of their conversion. True gospel fellowship is not just for the good times. It is steadfast. It endures hardship, it endures suffering. And friends, if you haven't, this is the time to settle the matter in your heart and to humbly pray for strength to stand. It's easy to see how, when one person starts suffering, getting the ire of the world, and mockery, and a lot of attention, he will just back off. And I don't really, you know, he's probably something. He probably did something he deserves, and just distance yourself from such people. Have we've seen this? We've seen this. We've experienced this. We've got two friends of this church who've been imprisoned for their conviction that they must continue to meet as a church. And they've been greatly maligned, their intentions. I've heard things like it's about money. They've got to meet because they've got to have money. They've got to pass the plate, as if that's their motivation. Others who just say, well... Their position is just completely unnecessary. Church doesn't have to do that. Church doesn't have to meet and so on. I've seen others who were partners with these men go completely silent, just leaving them hanging. And I think it's completely shameful, utterly shameful. And I know men who disagree with their position would maybe take a slightly different approach but who would nevertheless still speak up and see how ridiculous it is that they would be imprisoned. And yet there are others still who won't even do that. Just sell them out. Besides pandemic issues and responses, if our present, present government gets their way, pastors who preach that homosexuality is a sin, that it is something to, be, to repent of, They can be faced with charges and even jail time. I'm talking about Bill C-6, if you're familiar with this. And those who view any opposition to the LGBTQ movement agenda as being conversion therapy. That's, That's how it's viewed. Any opposition to it shares the root of conversion therapy and should be outlawed. We've already seen this starting to play itself out. And I can see very easily now how many people would want to distance themselves from such people. Gee, did he really have to say it? Did he really really have to say it like that? Did he have to post that online? Did he really have to write that? Oh, his tone, yeah, he's a little bit harsh. There's other ways he could have maybe handled that. Such people would have said the same thing about John the Baptist when he calls out Herod. Same thing about Jesus when he attacked and called out the Pharisees, when he flipped over tables in the temple. Would have despised Jeremiah preaching and so on. Part of preaching the gospel is preaching sin. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, Paul says. We have to define sin. What does this mean that he died for sins? People must know what sin is if they're to see their need for Christ. We preach God's law, his perfect standard to expose that sin. And we preach God's gospel, his free grace as the answer to that, as the solution. That despite that sinfulness, whatever it be, whether it's homosexuality or lying or lust in your heart or greed or whatever it might be, all of which is sinful before God, all of it worthy of damnation, nevertheless, God offers forgiveness. There is grace, there is pardon in Christ. God himself has taken the initiative in sending his son that sinners might be forgiven and reconciled with our creator. And so we have no choice. We must be people of truth and speak truth and call sinners to repent of their sin. And if the battle is raging in one particular area, like sexuality, then we don't have the benefit of just escaping and staying out of it if we are to be witnesses to the truth. Paul found himself in trouble a lot as he preached, but his hands were clean of blood. He preached, he says, the whole counsel of God. He says this very thing in Acts 20 to the elders there the last time you would see them, he preached the truth and he took the consequences that came. And some people were ashamed of him for it, embarrassed about it. I I, I hope you see that's not hard to picture. Perhaps you felt that twinge of, of shame of being identified with the Lord's people or certain truths of God's word that are difficult for people to hear in these days. Some were ashamed of Paul, but there were others like the Philippian church that stayed true, joining and supporting him in this cause because of their commitment to the Lord. And so you see why Paul is so joyful as he prays for this church. Let us be unashamed of the gospel and of those who would suffer for preaching truth. Of course, we know, yes, there are those who may err, who may invite unnecessary suffering upon themselves. 1 Peter 3 makes it clear that's, that's a thing. But let us be diligent and careful not to sell brothers and sisters out in order to try to maintain some sort of status with the world or some sort of ease of living or some sort of favor in the eyes of the world. The world will not be satisfied until you're one with them. You will give and you will give and you will give until there's no distinction. Sure, not every hill perhaps is worth dying on, but there are hills worth dying on. And if you fear in any of this, yet you know this to be true, I would encourage you to be reminded of what we just read in verse 6. Trust that God will be faithful to see you through and to give you the strength needed to stand. Has he not brought you this far? Coming through trial with brothers and sisters only strengthens the bond of fellowship and further proves one's faith. Let's not live our lives in fear of it. True gospel fellowship is a joyful gift from God. It is preserved and secured by him And it is accompanied by the fruit of steadfastness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there is much weakness within us, more than we even know. Even when we feel great and feel strong, we are still weak and still in constant need of your preserving power, in constant need of your grace. Father, we thank you that salvation is yours. That you are the God who is mighty to save. And that the salvation that your son has secured is indeed secure. That our inheritance that we await is an imperishable inheritance. That it will not fade. Father, give us faith to believe that. I pray that these truths would strengthen our souls. I pray that you would bring relief to our concerns and our anxiety. Father, give us the discipline to turn our eyes away from all the troubles, to meditate on your word and to meditate on your goodness and your power and all that you are. Father, we praise you together. We thank you for your mercy, your kindness. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.